Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play. This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Jason Carlowish. Dr. Carlowish researches and writes about issues at the intersections of bioethics, aging, and the neurosciences. He is the author of The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It, and the novel Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont. His essays have been published in Forbes, The Hill, The Los Angeles Times, The New York Times, The Philadelphia Inquirer, Stat News, and The Washington Post. He is a professor of medicine, medical ethics, and health policy, and neurology at the University of Pennsylvania, and co-director of the Penn Memory Center, where he cares for patients. Dr. Carlowish, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, you're very welcome. It's a real pleasure to be here, man. I've heard you speak about your experience with your grandfather um, having dementia and that being an inspiration to you. There's a similarity in our paths um, in my interest in medicine and specifically geriatrics as well with my grandmother. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that inspiration. Yeah, well, it was it was sad inspiration, not inspiring inspiration. <laughs> Namely, um, he had this sort of not well-diagnosed dementia, no surprise for the time. I'm not criticizing that. And we were just sort of dealing with things kind of the natural way, meaning, you know, people just falling into caregiving roles and whatnot. And, you know, maybe that was working, maybe not. Um, but then he fell and broke his hip and got admitted to one of the leading academic medical centers in the United States. I mean, I'm hide it was Yale. He got admitted to Yale. And basically they did their best to kill him. Um, and, uh, but there was not care that you could fault. And in other words, it wasn't like, I mean, of course you could fault it, but I looked and said, well, this is what I was doing too, you know, um, and my colleagues. And so I realized, you know, this, it, this, he got the, the best of surgical care and otherwise around that it was just a disaster. And I realized that, you know, you can be part of the problem or you can try to change the system and, you know, be the solution. And so I decided to do the latter. And at the time I was enrolled in a critical care fellowship at the University of Chicago. And I, I, um, I switched to geriatrics. Now, I had been thinking about this earlier. It wasn't like prior to that, I didn't have any interest in aging. I had a very strong interest in aging, but this was kind of the event that finally tipped it. <clears throat> and I think in particular, because it was such a personal event where the hurt was real and the anger and frustration was real, um, that, um, that I just said, all right, enough. It's not like I have a problem with pulmonary critical care for, in particular in the last few years. It certainly taught us the need for people with those skills in those areas, given the pandemic, for example. But, you know, if you could look at where there's need, there certainly is need for people to try and um, improve care for people like my grandfather so that the experience of having a hip fracture 
doesn't become not just a terminal event, but an event that essentially was just undignified and also um, kind of a source of just regret and and stress ever since for me and, and I think for my family. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's really valuable to reflect on events like that and what um, what they mean in our careers and how we change the way that we're treating patients based on those events. Yeah, no, there's nothing like emotions to be the sort of final driver mm-hmm. to why we do what we do and don't ever discount that. I mean, yeah, you know, doctors are economic actors. We go into fields because there's going to be good lifestyle, whatever that means, et cetera. But <clears throat> I think if you're driven by an emotional passion, a, a, a cause, you're going to get through the hard times and put up with the rough spots and tolerate the oddities of the system um, and uh, and also mm-hmm. get some meaning out of it. You know, and and I do think you know when I look at what I have done in my career, I I think that I've I I think of my grandfather, and I do think that that I've made some other families' lives not as bad as you know better than saved them from some of the disasters that that befell people mm-hmm. like my family, um, and that that makes me feel good. It feels like I've done absolutely. Something. This is something that we've talked about on the podcast before, but given this is one of your areas of expertise and it is so often misunderstood, I think it's worth revisiting for our listeners. How, how do you present the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Yeah, um, very good question because it reflects changes in nomenclature that have occurred in the last, in the turn of the century, in the last two decades. You know, once upon a time, you could not have Alzheimer's if you weren't diagnosed with dementia. So no dementia, no Alzheimer's, N-O, dementia, N-O, Alzheimer's. You could also say, you know, K-N-O-W. If you don't know dementia, you don't know Alzheimer's. And that made that was because it was a clinical diagnosis and relied on saying someone is, has disabling cognitive impairments and based on the history, et cetera, the most likely cause is Alzheimer's. It also reflects that in the 80s, 1980s, most cases of dementia in older adults were judged to be Alzheimer's. There was a recognition, oh, you know, hyperthyroidism and lead poisoning and B12 could cause it. But, you know, everyone knew that those were certainly causes, but they weren't, there seemed to be like the neurodegeneration was one of the drivers, but it was all Alzheimer's. It was all Alzheimer's because that's all the neuropathologists saw along with vascular disease and whatnot. Anyway, so what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Fundamentally, Alzheimer's disease is a disease. It's just, it's, pathologies in the brain that are causing neurons to die that lead to disabling cognitive impairments, namely dementia. But there are many other diseases that cause dementia. Robin Williams, the comic actor, had Lewy body disease, developed disabling cognitive impairments as well as distortions in perception of reality and crippling anxiety. Um, Bruce Willis, the, the actor, has frontal temporal lobar degeneration, a very distinct set of pathologies that cause changes in language and social comportment. Um, so dementia, disabling cognitive impairments caused by a disease, Alzheimer's, one of the more common causes, but not the only cause. And what follows from that, of course, is, well, if you don't have to have dementia to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, because there's actually distinct entities, um, could Alzheimer's be diagnosed before one has dementia? And of course the answer is absolutely. And in my own practice, I certainly label people with Alzheimer's who don't meet criteria for dementia, but um, otherwise, I feel, you know, the, the sum of criteria, I don't feel it. I, I believe it. I know it. Never mind belief. Um, 
is that is Alzheimer's is causing their 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 uh, incipient cognitive problems. What is involved in a dementia diagnosis these days? History, 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 and then some more history, and then finally some exam, and only then imaging, etc. So you know, I, I the, to me the the simplest way to sum up what dementia is is disabling cognitive impairments, namely not physical problems, but cognitive problems are causing someone to be unable to do things they used to be able to do, like uh, travel from one place to the other using the car or public transportation, um, organize and pay their bills, uh, think about what meal they want to have, decide that they want to go to a restaurant, go to the restaurant, order the meal and pay the bill and calculate the tip. Someone with dementia has trouble doing those things. And unless someone else helps out, oftentimes makes mistakes or otherwise just doesn't do those activities, that other person is a caregiver. So, so, so what you need is a history of that, those kind of events. And, and you obtain that history by talking to the patient who's complaining of memory problems and cognitive problems. And many patients do. They may discount their severity, but they'll tell you they're having problems. And you talk to someone who knows them well, who's been observing these problems and says, you know, this is what I've noticed. And that history around of cognitive problems and functional changes moves you pretty close to saying, I think there's a dementia here. And then the cognitive testing um, and aspects of the neurological exam help narrow down what the disease might be causing it. And then imaging, more and more actually imaging, allows us to be even more specific with what disease is causing this person to have dementia. Many of us have firsthand experience with this already, although I have encountered some who aren't really sure how to handle communicating with patients with dementia, especially as the disease progresses. Do you have any specific advice that you provide on um, how to best communicate uh, with those who are losing memories? Yeah, so a couple thoughts. Um, First of all, when I used to do inpatient work, I had a very standard routine. I would knock on the door and I would say, um, uh, Mr. Carlo, Mr. Carlo, it's Dr. Jones. Um, can I come in? And I would wait for, yeah, come on in. Um, if not, I would come in and then I would hold out my hand and say, hi, I'm Dr. Carlo, I'm making rounds. And what I was looking for was recognizing auditory acuity issues, of course, could be a problem. Do they engage and interact with me in a way that would be socially and, and com, uh, 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 culturally appropriate? They say, yeah, come on in and hold out their hand and say hello. Um, and uh, my default always is to talk to someone as though they're cognitively normal and also to just talk to them the way I'm talking to you, namely a tone of voice that I would use to talk to any other adult as opposed to a high-pitched tone of voice or baby talk or some sort of bizarre slow talk. Um, and I would then work off that baseline. Um, if there's auditory acuity problems, I would adjust. Sometimes I'd even put on my stethoscope. You reverse it. You put the earbuds in their ears and you talk into the bell. Um, if they were panicked and agitated, I might adopt a more calming tone of voice and whatnot. Etc. Because you know, in the inpatient setting, it would be delirium. But again, my default is talk to adults like adults, um, and then work off of that. Um, I do um, look for cues of of difficulties with uh, with of, for, of aphasia. 
Um, if I see someone struggling, I'll often say, are you struggling to get the word out? Is, and, and I'll say, is that frustrating you? In other words, I will give them the space to acknowledge I am frustrated because many patients who have, um, especially logopenic variant, um, primary progressive aphasia are extremely aware of their, of their, um, speech problems and they, they know they're struggling to get words out. And so I'll acknowledge that and sort of, you know, reassure them, you know, reassure them that, you know, we can have this conversation, please don't get upset. Cause I know if they do get upset, they're going to have more problems with word finding <laughs> by upset. I mean, anxious and whatnot. Uh, because, you know, it's intimidating to be talking to a doctor when you're having cognitive problems. Um, and that pretty much applies through all stages. Um, and I don't, I'll say some other things that I do, and I know the audience is physicians. So when I talk to a family member about a patient, like they'll call, I'll get an epic message, you know, and I'll call them back and say, okay, what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, and they'll tell me. And oftentimes these are very advanced stage patients. <laughs> And we'll be talking about the patient in the third person, you know, whatever that problem may be that they've called me about. And I routinely will say, you know, please give your greetings to my, to your wife. Please, please tell your husband hello for me. And I say that because I would do that with any patient. Like if you called me about your partner and said, I'm calling you, he, he, she can't whatever, but here's what's up. And she wanted me to, he wanted me to ask you if we should take two pills or one pill and whatever. You know, I probably would say, oh, and say hi to him and let him know, you know, I'm thinking about him. And so I do that also with the patients, even though I, I know some of them, if they said Dr. Carlowish says hello, they'd be like, who's he and what's going on or whatever. But uh, again, the default is treat adults like adults. Um, and some of the caregivers say, you know, thank you for that. They'll, they'll thank me um, uh, for that acknowledgement of, you know, my relative is a person and, you know, I appreciate that you would like to be remembered to them and say hello. So again, that, that is my default. Talk to adults like adults at a tone of voice that you would speak to any other adult. Don't baby talk. Um, recognize the struggles of communication. Um, and uh, work off from that based on what feedback you get that suggests I need to alter my tone of voice. And I'm hammering this point home because when when I notice other colleagues talking to patients, they often talk to them like they're idiots. And I'm you know, this high pitched, slow, weird tone of voice. And this, I mean, I was, I went to a visit with my father to, to an ophthalmologist and it's funny afterwards, my father said, what would you think about that? And I said, I thought his way of communicating was a little weird. He said, yeah, I, I, I thought it was pretty weird too. I mean, he basically talked to my dad in this slow, now that eye drop will go in that eye. And I'm like, just talk to him. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate you really hammering that home because I too witnessed that at times and it's so frustrating and I it's helpful always to be reminded to speak to your adult. Yeah. I yeah. get and I get driven nuts when house staff says he's so cute. <laughs> yeah. I just I'm like I just I just I it is like running fingernails across a chalkboard which no one does anymore cuz there's no chalkboards. But I'm um, I'm dating myself, but it's like you know, I just don't know. I mean, you know, was that, would you say that? What right. cute. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, it's an adult. Absolutely. I don't know. It just strikes me as very ageist. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so moving into kind of talking about family members and caregivers now, I know for anyone with a family member with um, dementia, oftentimes, 
you become anxious about your own risk or the risk in other family members. Um, what is the current research around inheritance um, or prevention in these cases? Well, I think the prevention data is pretty good for dementia. Namely, you know, over the last 40 years, the risk of developing dementia has declined. Um, there's still quite a lot of people with dementia because there's quite a lot of people living into their 80s. And so age, advanced age, chronologic age is our chief risk factor. But there just aren't as many as we predicted. And when you look at why from those studies, like the Framingham study, the Rotterdam study, the Mayo Clinic, Mayo study of aging, generally the story is pretty consistent, which is access to lifelong good health care that maintains generally good health, particularly cardiovascular health, seems to be associated with reducing the risk of developing dementia. In the face of that, of course, is there's not been a single treatment that's effective for the diseases that cause dementia, so they'll still remain as a cause, obviously, of, of, of dementia, Alzheimer's, Lewy body disease, TDP43, synuclein, et cetera, different pathologies. Um, genetics certainly plays a role. There's no question. You know, the APOE4 gene is a well-described risk gene. You can have up to two copies of the E4 gene. One copy increases your risk, two copies even more. People with two copies do have a really heightened risk if they don't, if it particularly peaks around the age of 70. If they get beyond about 70, 75, the risk starts to drop, actually. People with one copy have an elevated risk. And I find family members become extremely worried about uh, risk, adult children, to the degree that I almost want to... I almost have to walk them back. Like I've got plenty of, there's twin studies, twin studies, people who have the same genome where one twin is the caregiver for the other. So I think we have to be very careful with, you know, genes or destiny with these diseases. Um, I, I think it just reflects the general anxiety though people have about aging and, 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 um, uh, you know, loss of, of, of abilities and seeing it in their family member just brings it home even more um, plainly. Um, so, you know, a good cardiac uh, uh, lifestyle, access to good health care across the lifespan um, is certainly been associated with, with reducing one's dementia risk. Yeah. I want to end talking about caregivers because they are a really important piece of the puzzle when talking about um, patients with dementia. This is a, a huge topic and a huge question, but in your mind, how how can we take better care of our caregivers? Um, so I'll tell you what I do. Um, I mean, there's a policy issue. We need national long-term care social insurance. Uh, we need to give families a backstop for the economic strains. But as a clinician, let me tell you what I do. Um, so after I do an assessment of the patient by interviewing the caregiver and kind of get the whole picture of what's going on, um, I'll ask the caregiver, I'll say, what about you? How are you doing? And I literally give it about a three count because some of them need that interval of what is only three seconds to suddenly blurt out a host of things. And then I follow it up with, is there anything you need? And I find those two questions very helpful to give them the space to say, you know, I'm doing okay. Everything I'm managing versus this is awful or whatever it may be. And then also for what they need. Sometimes I kind of think I know what they need and they don't know it. And then I'll start to suggest, well, what about? And I'll tell you, one of the things I do do is when I perceive a real sense of ambiguous loss, that the caregiver really doesn't really feel that the person is is there, meaning uh, ambiguous loss describes like my son went off to war, my daughter went off to war, 
We haven't heard from them. They don't know where she is. We don't know if she's dead or alive. That's ambiguous loss. And caregivers will feel that. Like my, 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 my husband's there, but sometimes I really don't feel like he's there. I don't really connect. And the more I get a sense of that ambiguous loss, I will encourage caregivers to seek out other friends. I'll say, you know, it's, you really ought to think about finding someone that you can connect with. Um, it's okay to do that. And I'm giving them the permission to cultivate an emotional relationship with, with others. They can take it in whatever way they want. Um, but I think for some of them, that permission to connect with someone for that kind of emotional engagement that we get from a relationship that off that can be, that can be not always, but can be lost in caring for someone with some of the phenotypes of dementia, particularly FTD forms um, of, of dementia, sometimes in Lewy body disease as well, in particular, um, I think they need that encouragement to take, to do something which others oftentimes judge as wrong and immoral. Uh, I mean, I got into a huge debate with a colleague who's like, you know, uh, the debate was in particular about, um, a caregiver allowing their relative to have a relationship with someone else in a long-term care facility. It's a little different than that. And my saying to the caregiver, like, that's okay. You know, and you too need to find someone. And my, this colleague was like, but marriage is a sacred vow. And I would never want, you know, myself if I was I'm like, well, it may be sacred, whatever that is. I don't know, but people change and, um, and have different experiences of the world and preferences. And you have to acknowledge that. Um, so I, so I've del- devoted some time to this answer because I do think it's one aspect of caregiving that they they feel awkward talking about if you don't give them the space to acknowledge that it's okay to bring that it's okay to talk about this, um, and I'm and I'm willing to to listen. Now, fortunately, I also have an excellent social work team I work with who, when I do encounter patients who ha- start to reveal real existential needs, um, and there I think fundamentally existential needs that I can um, have them meet with my social work team uh, who can help them work through it. They have a very good, they uh, all the social workers in our center, particularly many of them are certified counselors. They're trained in counseling and they really have been able to help people work through ambiguous loss and some of the related, more difficult um, uh, experiences being a caregiver. As we wrap up here, I just want to provide the opportunity for you to um, plug anything. If anyone listening wants to learn more about you learn more about dementia? Do you have any suggestions? Sure. If they want to learn more about me, then go to my website, jasoncarlowish.com, Carlowish with a K, Jason Carlowish. Um, but my plug to them would be, um, we are living through a revolution, I think, in these right now in the approach that we're taking to diagnosing and treating older adults with disabling cognitive impairments and the ability to diagnose the diseases in the ability to intervene with pharmacologic treatments, in the ability to provide patients and family members access to the full spectrum of care. And I think that just as, for example, the field of oncology experienced a revolution in the 60s and 70s that moved oncology into being a disease with tremendous focus, same thing in cardiology with the development of the clockbuster drugs in the late 80s into the 90s of last century. I think that's what's happening in this field. And if I had to give advice to a medical student who's sort of think, thinking about what they want to go into, 
go into the dementia space, whether you're as a neurologist, as a geriatrician, or as a psychiatrist. But um, there's a real need. You can you can do some real good and uh, get some amazing, get some um, very, I think, satisfying career accomplishment from it. Um, and my only regret professionally is I wish I was, I don't know, a couple of years younger because I have the feeling things are going to be really different 20 years from now in a good way, in a good way. And I hope to be around to at least see it, maybe even be a patient involved in it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Carlos, for sharing your expertise. I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode. Well, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it, Madeline. Take care, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices of Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests on the podcast and to learn more about us as a student group. See you next time.